Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open with two more opening in the next eight weeks with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Okay, everybody, it's fro time. It's your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Scott Sigmund, here to host another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. Again, we have a very special guest today. We have Scott Becker, who is, I believe, uh, a titan of industry within the publishing world. Uh, he's a, an attorney. He's a partner at McGuire Woods LLP, and he is the uh, publisher of Becker's Healthcare, which is publications, conferences, print, digital, live events. He does it all. Welcome to the show, Scott. Well, Scott, a pleasure to visit with you today. What a great pleasure, and it's good to see you. I know you're working your, 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 uh, very hard and doing a lot of it virtually. What a fascinating chance to visit with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we got you. I'm still in the master bedroom uh, uh, closet suite at this point, still getting all our information out. It's been working well for me, so we're going to stick with it. So, so look... You know, I was on with uh, Mike Redler uh, the other day. We actually just posted his podcast, and we were both sort of chatting about how proud we are that we've made it to one of Becker's lists, and uh, we're prominently uh, up there. So you are the master of lists. I want to be very. I want to tell you something right now before we get started. This is our our fifteenth episode that I've been uh, taping as as the as the host of the Ortho Show, and I want to promise you, you're going to make the top ten list. I guarantee you. <laughs> I only hope so. Like at least I know if there's 15 episodes, I'll make the top 15, so we oh, know we'll be in good shape. No, I, I re- I'm really confident in the top 10. I think you're gonna do awesome. All right, I, that's, so lots of fun. So, you know, look, we got a lot going on with this whole COVID thing, but we're we're away from that. We're moving on. We're trying to get out and, and see what's going on. I just want to talk a little bit about about how you got started, and uh, you know, so you graduate. Harvard Law School in, in 1989, and, and how come healthcare law? How come you went that direction? Sure. So it's, it's a great question. I ended up in healthcare law. I was working my first few years at a large, large law firm, and what really happened, it wasn't sort of, I can't, I can't sort of credit this great compassion or this wanting to solve the legal problems of the ill or solve the health problems of the world. What really happened is I started working on a few healthcare-related transactions and deals and regulatory issues and so forth. It was just a really interesting area. It was, um, I came out of law school. I went straight from college to law school. I did go to Harvard Law School, but I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And that was more and more clear after two to three years of practicing law at a large law firm. You practice these large law firms that are as bad as like living in a residency. You, you work extremely hard. You're, you're, um, you know, it's a very, um, you learn a ton and you work extremely hard. So after three years of law, I was, you know, as burnt as you could be. And I wanted to make sure I'd done some work in healthcare, and I wanted to make sure as I moved forward 
and I had a chance to reset myself, to sort of look again at that I really want to do transactional work, regulatory work, litigation work. And healthcare was an industry versus necessarily a legal area. A legal area would be litigation or corporate or, or regulatory. A industry area would be energy, healthcare, a whole bunch of areas that are organized by, by industry. And healthcare was perfect. It was 18, 20% of the economy. Even then, it was 15, 17%. And it gave me plenty of chance to explore a lot of different things and more fully figure out what I wanted to do. And I was at the time in my late 20s, and it was just a, it was, I had done some work in it, and it provided lots of opportunity to learn and grow and figure things out. And it's been a magnificent area to get into. It was, it was just magnificent. All right. So you decide you're going to do healthcare. For whatever reason, it found you. You weren't necessarily looking for it. And then uh, you talked industry, which is interesting because, you know, what you've done is, is really quite remarkable. And I want to talk about that. I mean, you've sort of created this this industry, this space within healthcare that really didn't exist where, you know, if you need to know what's going on in healthcare right now, ASC, hospitals, insurances, I mean, everybody's saying the same thing. You got to get to a Becker, you know, course, Becker publication, it's Becker this, it's Becker that. I mean, so how, where did you get the idea to create this industry? Sure. So, so probably like yourself, I am a, uh, a, a, Builder by nature. I'm a learner by nature. I'm not a. I'm. I'm not bright enough to see the end in mind as well as I'd like to. So what happens is we started gradually building a, a following with newsletters and websites and, and small conferences. Literally 30 years ago now, in our 28th year of our ASC conference, and it was really it wasn't intended to be the media company that it is today. It was intended to be sort of. I was learning. I was growing. I was developing a brand for what I was doing, and just sort of learning. And what happened was about 13 years into it, I got it was going very well. We had one conference, we had one conference in the surgery center sector, we had outsourced most everything in that company. We were outsourcing almost everything. And we started to at that point look at this and say, this is interesting, this is exciting. Certainly I still practice law in my own way, but but in some ways more compelling than law, different than law, very interesting. It allows me to talk to just the most interesting people every day. People like yourself, people like Dr. Redler, people like lead executives of the largest health systems, people that are major celebrities. It allows me, the healthcare world, to do so many interesting things. So it started to get more and more interesting. At that point, I started to hire full-time employees in the business. And really, there is a great theory that most of us have that nothing gets done that's significant today without teams. And so it wasn't until I started building a team about 15, 17 years ago that Becker's Healthcare became much closer to what it looks like today. At that point, I heard a number of different people and sorted them out. One of the people that stuck with me from the get-go is our president and CEO, a woman named Jessica Cole. Jessica Cole, was, when she started with me, was in college, literally. She started with me as an intern working you know, part-time, and I'd hired eight to 10 full-time employees. And Jessica was working as an intern and was outperforming all of the eight to 10 full-time employees that he had hired at that point, literally from her apartment in college. And so I had a beggar to come to work for me full-time. She came to work for me full-time, became a partner. And what really happens, how we split things up over the years is she really became the commercial officer. She's now the CEO and president and my partner in it. I became the content person. So we started off in surgery centers. Then we at some point looked at, this goes back 15, 16 years ago, she had started to establish herself as just incredibly valuable. And we sat down and looked at strategy. We started to think about what are we going to be as a company? What are we going to do? 
and there were different types of media companies out there. There was one that we competed with. It was so deep, but just in one area. And that one area wasn't big enough to really support the kind of company we wanted to build. The flip side is there were other companies that had 20 different verticals. They were in 20 different areas. And they would be typically good in three to five areas. And that's where all their money would come from. And they'd be awful in 15. And at, at some point, we made the decision we wanted to be somewhere between those two. We wanted to be deep in three to five areas and not in 20 areas, but not in one either. And so at that point, going back 15, 17 years ago now, we expanded into orthopedics and spine into hospitals and health system. And, and, and for, a very long, for a period of time, we were surgery centers, which was our original place, orthopedics and spine, and then hospitals and health system. Hospitals and health system became the biggest part of our business for very basic reasons. It's the biggest market out there. Orthopedics and spine is still very, very critical to what we do, is our surgery centers. And then health IT, we added on about eight to 10 years ago, and it's become very important too. That was sort of the story and the, the evolution of how it got going, and I really credit it to Jessica and then some of our editorial leadership, Molly Gamble, uh, Laura Durda, and there's another woman, Katie Atwood, who's the chief operating officer who's been with us for 10 plus years now too. And, and those people really built, started to build a team around what we do, and, and now we've got a, a large company, but very focused on four core areas or so. It's funny. In, in law school, they don't teach you how to, to open a business. They don't teach you how to be an entrepreneur. Obviously, you had to learn this on the fly. You, designed, you sort of found the space. You wanted to build something. You know, there had to have been some failures along the way, too, right? It, it, it's not ever so smooth and perfect, is it? Sure, sure. So what happens is it's, it's, it's a great question. So there were multiple different failures, of course, and there's multiple lessons learned from those failures. I grew up in a legal culture originally where there was a the method of management and if you went back 30 years ago this was common was sort of the the yelling and screaming method of management versus the coaching and development method of management i mean you're probably around my age maybe a little bit younger but the the, the gist is you went back 30 years management styles were very different so as a, as a third or fourth year lawyer it was one day screaming at a young lawyer for not getting something done and not getting done how I wanted to, or for whatever reason. And another lawyer, Marcella Corpus, was brought out to pull me aside, and also a very young lawyer, to say, even though that may work for the moment, and getting this person to do what you want, to, want him to do, this is horrible for our entire team and culture, and everybody hates it. And it was, it was the, the positive learning experience was I was able to change on a dime and 99% get out of the yelling business. My kids might argue differently, say differently, but largely was able to understand what he was saying and get it right away. And there were, there were multiple failures like that. People would say, oh, you were a genius for becoming the leading lawyer in surgery centers before surgery centers were a thing. And, and like everything else, it wasn't genius. I was testing three or four different areas. Surgery centers was the one that took off. And so I was, I, what I am good at is recognizing trends and, and doubling down on those trends. I, I view it the same world. Uh, people, talent, you know, constantly a believer in doubling down on talent, doubling down on people, doubling down on areas, doubling down on niches. There's, there's no like, we, we're a big believer in long-term relationships. So the people we connect with, we've already stayed connected with for a very long time because we enjoy people. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of lessons that have come over the years and, of course, lots of failures and errors. Yeah, I mean, there's never, there's never a cookbook. It, nobody says, here's how you're going to do this. You're gonna, this is how you're going to build a business. You have to move forward. You take a step backwards. You make a step forwards. I think 
relationships are huge. I mean, that's, you know, that's such a major, major thing to be able to maintain relationships throughout your lifetime. You're never sure when that person's going to help you out again down the road. So, so look, there's a lot of concern right now about how we are going to communicate as professionals. We all have all come to the meetings. I've been very fortunate to be a member uh, and uh, uh, faculty for several of your meetings, and, and I enjoy them immensely. I'm not just there to teach, but I'm also there to learn. Uh, and, you know, the question is, what everybody wants to know, when are we getting back together? What, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking? Sure. So it's, what, what I think is, I mean, what I think is as follows, and it's a complicated set of thoughts, and it's politicized, and so you've got to be so careful what you say and so on and so on. I don't think you are. The bad news is I don't think you're getting fully back to meetings until there's a vaccine of some sort. The, 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 the good news is the more that all of us know, the vaccine is not a cancer vaccine. It's not an AIDS vaccine. There are, they are making progress, of course, on cancer vaccines of multiple different types, which many of us are aware of. AIDS, not so much, but it's not that kind of vaccine. It's not a polio vaccine. This is more, in my view, in learning and education, more an advanced superlative flu vaccine, and you almost have to view it like that. So the, the flu vaccine works as follows. The flu vaccine works for 30 to 70% of people a year, but it working for 30 to 70% of people a year greatly reduces spread. So you end up with a flu that then almost in all years is a very modulated flu, meaning it will kill still a couple hundred thousand people internationally, but it's not like the Spanish flu. It's not like we have now with where COVID's killed 460,000 people internationally. But if you have a vaccine that works for 50% of the people or more, and you do distribute it broadly, what will happen is you will still have a virus. You will still have a problematic virus, but you are, you are likely to have one. That, like, that spreads a huge amount less. So if you look at a place like New York, a place like New York where it spread aggressively and 30% of people got infected, at least what the antibody tests show, 20 to 30% of people have been infected somehow or another. What, what you're likely to have is, and this will come back to the meeting question, I guess, in a moment, is what you're likely to have in New York is because 30% plus people have been infected, you are less likely to have this next surge, at least until those antibodies wear off. In places like the southern states where they've had almost no infections, we are suddenly seeing surges. And part of the problem is there are not a lot of people that have been infected. And so there's not a lot of people that are infected. It means there's a lot of people left to be infected. It's like playing greenfields. There's greenfields to be infected. And so you're seeing surges in Texas, Arizona, and a number of places. I think the fascinating thing about the Sweden approach, and again, it's highly politicized. I don't want to talk positively or negatively about it, but because they allow people to get infected, very negatively, of course, they took their lumps. They had something like uh, now 4,700 people have died from it in Sweden, you know, you know, a higher percentage in some other places, a lower percentage in other places, somewhere in between. They did better than most of Europe, but not as well as some of the Scandinavian countries. But because so many people have already been infected, they're likely to be in a spot where it doesn't spread as quickly anymore. And, it, and it's, it's a very complicated thing because nobody knows how long the antibodies last for and so like that. I do think that if we get to the spot – we have a challenge in that you've got a president that, whether you like him or not, is not a particularly focused, uh, necessarily competent leader. He's, he's doing some things right, but some of things get distracted in his message that he's hard to follow and listen to. And then you've got a left that so hates the president, and not wrongfully so, not rightfully so. But, and so you have a very hard time between the two to 
coming up with competent plans forward. What I do know that is great news, taking politics completely aside, the president is largely not very competent or very combative. The left wing that's so feisty and can't focus on just core government. You, you do have a situation. We're already in a spot where 12 different deep human studies are going on right now where they're already in human testing for vaccine. And we do have a spot where I know J&G's vaccine, they're going to test on tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people this next month. They are making great progress on it. And it's not the complication that you have with cancer or AIDS. The vaccines are already showing they create the antibodies you need. They'll create at least some immunity for some period of time. So I'm confident that this is a lot sooner than many of us might have originally projected. I certainly didn't think it would be this quick. But they'll likely have vaccines in the next year. They quite frankly could have this fall. If you remember the flu, they're doing a new vaccine every single year for the flu. I mean, because there's different strains every single year. So this is not the impossibility that the left or the right makes it sound like, but we have to understand it won't be perfect, and we have to make sure we don't too high of dose. And you're a doctor, not me, but we don't too high of dose. So we don't cause people to get the infection versus just create the antibody. So there's, there's a dosing issue and a number of safety issues. But I think as there are vaccines back, I don't think that's that far away, then you'll start to see meetings very fully. And you're also dealing with an economic recession that will also mute meetings some. Yeah, so a long gonna, answer to a question. Right. Sorry about so, that. So that's okay. So, so are we going virtual? I mean, you know, I just, there was the Toby conference that was the regenerative conference that I was a part of. And they actually did a pretty good job. And people were able to pop in and out, you know, and be able to go various lectures. I mean, what's the strat, what's Becker's strategy going forwards until that vaccine happens? Sure. So as a company, we were already 50% digital. We, we always call it digital, the conference world is virtual. We were already a 50% plus company that's digital. Now, of course, for the moment, we're 100% digital, and we're somewhere between, and our 50% is significantly up from where it used to be. So what you're at for the next year, and, and you know, it's, we have meetings planned for this fall. We are not confident in the current atmosphere of uncertainty as to what will happen with those meetings. I mean, we almost see it as when live events happen again for sports, they'll happen for all of us. At least it's the first bellwether to being able to do it or not do it. Then the second bellwether will be people's confidence in the economic ability to go. So I think your virtual, you know, we're, we're not, we still hold out hope. Uh, I wouldn't say we're cautiously optimistic, but we're, we're hopeful to have meetings late this fall, but we're, you know, but we're, we're, we're very confident of meetings starting again next May or so. And so you end up in somehow or another virtual to some extent. Now, the, the, the good thing is virtual is getting better and better. People are getting better and better at it. You see it through digital health. You see it through all kinds of tele, telehealth. Everybody that didn't do it before now has to do it, and patients like it. Virtual conferences obviously don't have the same complete ability to connect with people. I mean, so much of being at a meeting is, as you said, it's not just the learning. It's the networking. It's talking to colleagues to really get a sense of what's going on. And, you know, it's like anything else. You could talk by phone. You sit down with a close colleague, and now you have a real sense of, here's what's really going on. Here's what's going on in their practice. Here's things I should be thinking about for my practice and so forth. So much harder to do virtually. Yeah, and I, I think there's also a lot of pressure, especially for the doctors that are part of academic centers. There's you know, concern that there's going to be another swing in the fall. I, I don't think a lot of academic centers are going to allow their doctors to travel. They're just going to say, you can't go to a conference that has more than 30 people. And because if you do, you're going to be quarantined when you come back and you can't go to work. So that's what happened, you know, before 
that's when they finally shut down all the big conferences, all the academic center says you can't go. So it's, you know, it's a challenge. It's different, but you know, at the same time, you know, you guys are positioned well that you said, like you said, you were 50% digital before this happened. And so you'll make it work and we'll, we'll figure out a way, you know, whether it's antibody yeah. testing vaccines and surveillance and all of that, but we'll, we'll eventually get there. We're, 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 yes. But we're thrilled with the leadership of the company that we've had Jess, Amy, Kate, a whole number of people, Emma, Margo, and so forth, Scott, who've done this magnificent job of, of really pivoting to just double down our digital efforts, and it's going fine. I believe what you've said about academic medical centers, hospital health systems, people are going to be cautious about sending their people to meetings. You know, and, 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 and it is what it is, and this is normal and natural. There's also going to be economic pressure not to send people to meetings for a while. And so all those things will play into probably a, you know, a, a cautious rebound into meetings, uh, but there is pent-up demand for meetings like there is for everything because you could see it when people have been locked up for three months and the bars are overflowing, even though people know there's some danger with that. People are anxious, to, like people want to meet in person. So in the long run, it'll be fine, but it'll take a while. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, that's pretty fascinating. When did you get started with ASCs? What, what year? So our, our October Surgery Center Conference is in our 28th year or 29th year, you know, and so about 28 to 30 years ago. And so what's fascinating about the Surgery Center business is we saw rapid growth for a period of time. Then we saw much slower growth. Now we're seeing some growth again. But it's been fascinating to see the different participants and players changing it. I mean, there are old stalwart practices. Obviously, the biggest procedures are still ophthalmology, gastroenterology, orthopedics, and pain management are the four big procedures by volume for surgery centers. They're still what drives a ton of surgery centers, you know, and you've seen just a lot of changes. The big companies, some of them have gone in and out of business. They've sold themselves. There's been big changes amongst them. You've had hospital systems completely defensive to them for a period of time, then more excited about them. Now, sort of not that interested one way or the other that much about them, other than having outpatient surgery versus inpatient surgery. Uh, but it's, it's what's interesting about surgery centers is they were always driven by the a, a great deal by relatively independent surgeons. You know, the, 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 the fact that gastroenterologists, ophthalmologists, orthopedic physicians, pain management physicians did not become 100% employed is what led to surgery centers surviving through a long period of time. Uh, and they've continued to survive in part because those key specialties have at least relatively to significantly stayed independent while primary care physicians have largely become employed. So it's been a fascinating sort of saving grace to surgery centers. And even as it evolves and changes, you've had payers for a very long time were adamantly against surgery centers. And there's a good reason why they were. And I can explain it's a perverse uh, it, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a backward reason, but it's a good reason. What happens with with payers is payers traditionally in any market, their biggest supplier was the local health system, and so any dollars that came out of the local health system, even though it might have helped them pay less for outpatient surgery, caused the local health system to charge them more for other things. And so ASCs might have been a way to save money for payers, but because the payers were so dependent upon local health systems, it was sort of they would save money with surgery centers but lose money on their hospital contract. And, and, and as long as hospital hustles remained, that very important part of the payer universe, often 30 to 40 percent in a specific market of the dollars the payer was paying was going to the hospital, there was this very strong incentive 
not to take stuff away from the hospital because the hospital can just charge them in other ways for it. And so you have this very and, and you finally have now a situation where payers are much more open and interested to working with surgery centers, at least in some markets. All right, so Scott, so tell me what's next for Becker? For Becker, what are we going to? What's the next major event? What's coming down the pipeline? If you know, what's the next thing we're going to see? Sure. So we always start with a core strategy of eighty percent of our resources going to doubling down on what our core things are. So, so before we look at the new things, we always spend, and this is this is core to our living and being and how we work. Eighty percent of our efforts goes to doubling down on hospitals, health systems, self IT. Orthopedics, spine, and surgery centers. Those are the four areas that sort of pay the bills, that drive our traffic, that drive people wanting to stay connected, and us being the business place for those areas, the, the business information source for those areas. So we start with that. Then we look at, we have, you know, there's, there's still lots of room in those four areas and very important. Then we look at, there's things like cardiovascular and oncology, where there's pharmacy, where we've grown lines and are doubling down on lines because there's just a lot of interest in those areas. There, there's sort of, a, you know, our, our health IT meeting revolves on health IT and clinical leadership. Our health IT other meeting revolves on health IT and revenue cycle. But it's these, these areas of cardiovascular, oncology, pharma. Pharmacy is such an expensive spend for hospital health systems, so they're very focused on how to control pharmacy spend. So we're, we're working hard around those areas. And then we've got a lot of work around cardiology, oncology and so forth, where there's, where there's big markets and interesting markets and people trying to connect and learn. So virtual meeting, what, I know you still have a couple of meetings planned for the fall, but is that where we are right now? We're sort of waiting to see what happens? Yeah, I think so. What we're really looking at are virtual meetings. What we'll end up with is we'll end up with, for the virtual meetings, we'll have shorter, smaller virtual meetings than the large, large. You know, when we do our regular meetings, we often have two to four day events where we get a chance to bring in lots of magnificent speakers like yourself who speaks about opioid sparing strategies that's been way out in front in this area and such an important contributor to it. But we try and bring in lots of great speakers to create a great environment for networking and sharing and learning and so forth. In the audio context, in the virtual context, my impression is it's much more like our newsletter. Our newsletters are always short, concise. You can get to the point, you get what you need. I think that people are much more likely to stay attuned to virtual meetings if they're relatively short and to, and to the point. I mean, if you sit over a three-day meeting, a virtual three-day Zoom meeting, you may literally, you know, you know, there's the suicide statistics are horrible in our country. You may be one of those who sit through a three-day, yeah, sit through a three-day virtual meeting. I mean, they're, they're, it's just brutal to do. And so we're, we're likely to end up with lots of short parts. If we do longer meetings with lots of short parts. Where people, you know, they don't they don't sit through all of them, you know. I mean, you you think about it. I think about everything is, would I want to do that? And somebody asked me, do I want to sit through a three day meeting that's on virtual, that's on Zoom on the computer? I can't even listen to myself for three days. What about other people? No, no, not going to happen. But you could do it like evening. You could do like a a couple hours over an evening when people are home. It's a good time. You know, you make an exciting con, you know, uh, uh, concept and make it interactive. You know, it's get away from the didactics, but you talk about conversations going back and forth. Those are always very exciting. You know, I've been a part of a number of those webinars where, you know, it's been a lot of fun to take part. There's a great appetite for it. There's a great appetite for it. It's just, I think there's a great appetite for it, particularly the ones where there's some back and forth, it's ability to discuss, and where you're in and out within X period of time. Pick whatever that period of time is, but you, you keep somebody on a Zoom for four hours, 
and it's, it's, it's an impossible thing. Yeah, and I'm standing in my closet, so I can't stand still for four hours, so that's not going to happen. Hey, man, hey, Scott, I can't thank you enough. This was fantastic, everyone. This was uh, Scott Becker, just a, a leader in, in the uh, uh, publishing industry in the uh, medical uh, space. It's just amazing to have had you on. We really look forward and really want to thank you for all the hard work that you're doing that allows us to network, gain the information that we need to move forwards and really make a difference on the planet. So thank you very much. Scott, a great pleasure. You're one of the greats. It's a pleasure to visit with you. It's fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing. You've saved so many people's lives through your opioid sparing efforts. That is more valuable than anything that we do at Magnificent. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. So I want to thank our sponsor, Ortho Laser, Orthopedic Laser Centers. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.